0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I've got uh, three things for you quickly. One, if you have not yet listened to S-Town, turn this podcast off. Go listen to S-Town. There are tons and tons of spoilers in here. Uh, Spoiler alert. That's number one. Number two... Our show today is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to build a website, whether it's a uh, showcase for your work, a store to sell your products, maybe you've got a podcast and you want to build a site for your podcast. Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move, including a free domain. They've got these beautifully designed templates and customizable features. Go there now. Start a free trial. Squarespace.com and enter the code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Number three, the third thing on our agenda... This new podcast I want to tell you about. It's called First Day Back, and it's from Stitcher. The concept is pretty simple. How does a person return from an event that changes them? And the new season tells a crazy story. It's about a woman. She accidentally shot and killed her husband, but she has no memory of it. How do you come back from that? That's what First Day Back is about. Uh, Go subscribe now in Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And here is this podcast starting right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello, Max.
0: I'm very excited about your guest this
1: week. Man, I'm excited about my guest this week too. Don't spoiler. <laughs> I have to tell you who it is. No. <laughs> I don't want to know anything about I don't it. I want to hear it. I don't want to know anything about it. Uh, my guest this week is Brian Reed, who is the host and executive producer of S Town. Can we just say Shit Town on this one? Oh, yeah, Shittown. Shit Town. Shit town. Uh, We can say Shit Town. Oh, S-Town means Shit Town? Jesus, you guys. (laughs) Um, Have you guys listened? Have either of you listened? No. That's why I didn't want you to spoiler it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Stop listening. Now I'm not going to (laughs) listen. Aaron, stop listening to this intro right now. I'll give you you the the baseline intro. You really should not listen to this interview uh, until you have listened, and I really recommend you listen. Shit Town is a seven-part series. It dropped all at once. It is produced by This American Life and Serial, where Brian has worked for a long time. And it is the story of a uh, man named John B. McLemore, who is a uh, clockmaker in Alabama. He sent Brian, he really sent the like general This American Life uh, email inbox, an email, and said that he had a story that he thought they would like. And that was three plus years ago. And Brian's been working on it since then. And uh, it is a remarkable thing. It is a truly remarkable thing. I will say also not a spoiler, uh, but as someone who spent some large portions of my youth in small town Alabama, it's unbelievable the extent to which uh small town Alabama is captured by this podcast. Uh I'm I will say I know Brian a little bit and uh I'm not surprised that he was able to do that. That's like how he is both I know him much better as a person than a journalist, and that's like how he is as a person. Like I have sat in bars around america with him he's just like uh he's the kind of person who just kind of like meets everybody where they are if you want to meet people where they are there is no better way to do it than with mailchimp they make it easy to sign up new people send them emails keep track of your list all the stuff you need to do when you are running a small business running a project what have you thank you mailchimp and now here's max with brian reed Hey, Brian Reed. Max Linsky. It is good to see you. It is very good to see you. It's been too long. It has been too long, man. It has been too long. Uh, I have so many memories of our time together, but one memory (laughs) is sitting with you at some bar in like the East Village right around like three and plus years ago. Okay. And you telling me about this email you got. Really?
0: Yeah. Gosh, I don't remember. I thought you were going to say a bar in Chicago. But <laughs> never mind.
1: <laughs> I, maybe on a different podcast, we could talk about our okay. time in Chicago. All right, good. Yeah, let's uh, do that next time.
0: There's more pressing matters now. Wait, list- so, wait, what do you remember? Listeners
1: should know that you and I spent a, a very <laughs> blissed out, weird, romantic couple of days yeah. in Chicago.
0: Yeah. For... I mean, it was romantic. It was dark. It was fun. It was physically taxing. Very physically taxing. Oh, my gosh!
1: Uh, anyway, <laughs> a couple of years ago, you and I were having this beer, and uh-huh. you told me about this email that gosh. you had gotten from a guy in Alabama, okay, and you had not got down yet. Had
0: I talked to him? Yeah,
1: you'd talked to him, okay, but you hadn't gone. And like, yeah, I would
0: have just if it was actually three years ago, if that's where you're if you're right about that, then I would have
1: just started talking to him. Like, I think you had maybe talked to him that day. It was All very right. fresh in your mind, okay. and the what I remember of that conversation was you saying, I don't know if anything will ever come of this but I feel like I need to go there.
0: Yeah, that's an accurate reflection of my feelings <laughs> at the time. I mean that's I think that's like the spirit of the existence of the story, I guess. <laughs> it's just like a weird magnetism or something, you know.
1: And so having finished S Town, how have the last 72 hours been? <clears throat> Dude, it's been surreal.
0: I've gone through like a whole different arcs of emotions. We put S Town to bed on Monday. And we actually were done kind of early. So I was like kind of done. I didn't have a ton to do. I was like twiddling my thumbs around like three (laughs) in the afternoon on Monday. I mean, you had
1: been working on it for like three years.
0: I know, but that doesn't matter. Like we had to push it a week. We we were going to release it a week earlier and we pushed it a week because we weren't ready.
1: What wasn't done? The last chapter. You were still working on the last episode.
0: Oh, yeah. A week before we were supposed to launch. I don't think I'd read the last chapter aloud. Or like it was really in early shape. Oh, yeah. And we hadn't finished this sixth chapter. Still needed a lot of work. And so we gave ourselves an extra week. But we do that all the time with This American Life Stories, too. Right. And we always expand to fill the time available. Like we're always still working up to the deadline. So,
1: I mean, with a story you've been working on for three years, like was the middle of March an arbitrary time to launch it? Like, like, no, we were going to launch in like November. (laughs) Like
0: we just kept, no, we just weren't. I mean it was arbitrary in that like we just finally had to be like, this is when we're doing it. Like I have a day job I have to get back to, like they want me back at this American life. Like I've been gone for a year to do this thing full time. You know, like it's time for me to go back. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, advertisers are actual like companies that are like, We're gonna support this thing, but we kinda needed to like be in the first quarter. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so we made the first quarter by two days. <laughs> but uh, you know, um I'd made some last minute changes to chapters three and seven um, on Monday
1: morning. Like you were like re- yeah. retracking yes. stuff on Monday morning.
0: Yeah. And then I was kind of like freed up in the afternoon and it didn't feel right. I was like, I am forgetting something. What'd you do? I don't even know, dude. I have no idea what I was doing. Like Julie, my co-creator of this, she was doing the final mixes and stuff. So she was doing more. She was like getting, but even she, like she left at like six. It was crazy. That left us this whole period of like Monday evening where the thing was done six and a half hours of material or whatever was done. And there were like, you know, 12 to 16 hours before anybody was going to hear it. (laughs) And I felt high. Like I was blissed out. I didn't feel jittery. It was great. I didn't like, I was just like, this is out of my hands. And I'd been in work mode on it for so long. Like it's an emotional story. And I, I feel like often when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh, that must be so emotional for you to create this thing. And it happens with other stories too that are dark or troublesome or, you know, dealing with, trauma and stuff and yeah there are definitely moments when you're interviewing people and when you're thinking about stuff where it's emotional but I would say like the vast majority of like making a radio story for me the experience is more like building a house or something you know what I mean it's like work you're building a thing that's an
1: interesting thing for someone from a family of home builders to say
0: well that's how I think about it. it's like that's the jobs I don't know my dad was like a house I don't know just I kind of think of it as work in that way I love the work it's really enjoyable it's creative it's fulfilling it's challenging But I would say the majority of it, it isn't emotional. So I've been in that mode for so long on this, just trying to get it, make it happen. That like, so then like I had this like euphoric feeling like (laughs) that night I just like walked through the city and like went with my wife for dinner. I was just blissed out. I was like, I don't think I'll, I don't know if I'll ever make something like this again. Like I may (laughs) never have this feeling again. And so let me just enjoy it. And then in the morning, like, People started hearing it and listening. And I started. It was really cool, like because we've never done this before. We've never released all
1: the chapters at once. No one's ever done that before.
0: Is that true? You would it's know true enough. I would. It's yeah. true enough. Yeah. So, so we were just. It was interesting to watch people get to different parts in the story, yeah. like on Twitter and stuff. And so the since since then, the seventy two hours, it's just been like really moving. Like like it's been really moving. First of all, like I finally had time to feel emotional about it. Like about John and realizing that people were hearing it as a tribute to him, it's been emotional to get responses from such a variety of people who are listening to this. So people in the story living in Alabama, who I've known for years now, juxtaposed with like people in Hollywood listening to it, <laughs> juxtaposed with like friends who I haven't talked to in a long time, texting me as they get to different chapters out of the woodwork and like family and like my brother who I've never like he binged the whole thing, and in a day, he's never I've never seen him read a book or like watch even like a serialized tv show
1: what did he think of it
0: he dug it i don't know yeah i haven't talked to him right he's been texting me as he was going through i haven't seen him and then the last thing that was moving was like julie and i uh julie snyder who's a co-creator of serial and has been my editor for a long time and used to be the senior producer of this american life and so when i first started talking to john she was she was my editor at this american life and so she and i was talking to her about the story all the time and playing her tape from john and stuff and so we created this together and uh You know, we've been talking about it as like a novel to each other, a nonfiction audio novel, which we were like, this is just the thing we're calling it to each other. Like, we're never going to call it this publicly because no one would ever understand what the hell we're talking about. And it doesn't sound like something I think that a lot of people would want to listen to, like a nonfiction audio novel. Like, what does that even mean? And does that even sound sexy enough that people would want to listen to it? But for us, that was kind of like what we felt the story was just like the nature of it Hmm. and so we were working really hard to create something that sounded new to us and i think we thought maybe what we were doing was kind of subtle but to like like i've seen all these people like reaching out and like calling it a novel and saying they loved it being literary or novelistic that's been so surreal to like actually realize that like people are getting the thing we were trying to do and liking the thing we were trying to do that we thought might be, like, a turn-off.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. surprised to hear you say that you felt like the novelistic aspect of it was subtle.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we thought we were being, like, more subtle with it than we were. But then again, we, like, we called them chapters and stuff, so I don't know, maybe we weren't. But, like, I didn't know that, I don't know, people seemed to really be getting what we were seeing in it in, mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't expect... Because it's different. I haven't, we didn't have a ton to compare to. I mean, here's the other thing, like, about us. I don't know. Like, I've given talks before where people are like, so, like, do you, like, look into your listeners and, like, kind of figure out what they're interested in and what stories they like and, you know, do audience research or something like that. And the answer is no. Like, we do not care. <laughs> like, like we are out to amuse ourselves. Like, that's, that's the driving principle of this American life. That's always been Ira's driving principle, and he's instilled it in all of us. And it's awesome i mean like it's the best job like and you know amusement is a can be a wide term like it can mean serious investigative reporting just in terms of engaging ourselves you know or compelling ourselves but we're following our own interests and trying to amuse ourselves right and, and part, so
1: and, and part of what is amusing here is trying to do something that sounds different than anything right you and guys. so i
0: do but i think like i'm not often thinking about how people are going to hear it for a lot of the process it's just like do i like this mm-hmm. does this move me does this surprise me? Do I get a kick out of this piece of tape? That's really what it is. It's very self centered. So, <laughs> so, um, so, like, just... and it sounds cavalier, but like, we really, I mean, obviously, I love that listeners like it, but that's, that's kind of, I don't know. That's, I, to me, that's the way I know how to make something that works is just to like, do I like it? Do I like it? Do I like it? And then, you know, running it by my colleagues, but it's like a small group of us. Do we like this? Do we get a kick out of this? You know what I mean? Um,
1: did you ever have doubts about this one?
0: Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, there were doubts up to like when John went, did what he did. Like, I never knew if this was actually a story. Like, I was telling you, I guess, that night at the bar. But that's normal. I mean, like, we kill half the stories we start. Mm-hmm. So,
1: I guess it meant yeah. more about like doubts around like the novelistic approach.
0: Oh. No, once we started trying it and reading it for other people, I mean, Julie and I had had it kind of in our heads for a really long time. And then, like, I wrote the first chapter and read it for her and a couple other people. Seemed to be good. And then we, I think we wrote two more. And we did a big read of one through three with Ira and Sarah and Neil Drumming and Nancy Updike. And it was like a day long like <laughs> like thing. It was really intense. I'm very grateful that they sat through it. Um, but I don't know, it just seemed to be like, this is working, This is it's in here. And it, it was the only way that like, was making sense in terms of telling the story kind of at that point.
1: When you set out yeah. to like do something new how many experiments did you try within this that you ultimately like didn't use Mm -hmm.
0: well I mean so there was a long time before we started even structuring the thing so like you know so John um, killed himself and it was shortly after that we kind of talked about it and we were like is this what do we do? Like, is this a story? Like, what do we do here? And it seemed like there were things happening in the wake of his suicide to the people who knew him. And but after that, we had no idea what the story would look like. We had no idea like what it would be. We kind of had a sense it wouldn't be a This American Life episode, mm-hmm. you know. But we didn't know what shape. And so like, as I was following what was happening with Tyler and Rita and Charlie, you know, I would go with Tyler to he'd pay his bond to the bail bondsman. And the bail is this like loquacious, ridiculous guy with like a giant ring on. We walk into like a Baptist church to pay him. He's this giant dude who's like, you know, dipping jarred jalapenos into cheese whiz and doing business with Tyler over his bond, chatting up a storm and talking about his days as a cop on the railroad. And so Julie and I were like, well, maybe you interview the bail bondsman. He seems interesting, and maybe this is a story where like we take complete tangents. You know, there was another town council member who John knew. Who'd been put in prison for, in federal prison for embezzling almost a million dollars. It was very surprising. She's like this very active, friendly church lady kind of, you know. I never interviewed that bail bondsman in the end, but um, I did interview her for like four hours just about her life and got her whole story. So like we were like, we don't know if maybe the way this story goes is it's a portrait of the town in this way where like we tell complete left turns mm-hmm. that have nothing to, or very little to do with John. And then finally, when like, Julie and I could finally work on this full time at the beginning of last summer, we started talking about the shape and like talking through the different elements we had. And that was a long process. And that gradually became clear that like, we have enough about John and Tyler and a couple of these relationships that it's going to be a little more hermetic, mm-hmm. you know, but we didn't know that until we sat down to talk it through. And I had gathered all sorts of stuff that were possibilities, you know?
1: So basically the approach is just kind of like, get everything <laughs> you can give yourself as many options and then like, sit in a room and try and figure it out. Yeah,
0: I mean, guided closely by a very kind of high bar of what's interesting. So help, I,
1: help me understand where you were at in thinking about the story when he killed himself.
0: I mean, I was in the middle of a whole nother story at that point. Like, I was doing an hour-long story for This American Life the week he killed himself. It was coming out the next week. And I'd been talking to him on the phone because I was like, this is going to be done on the 4th of July, and I'm going to come down afterwards. Because um, I had a couple loose ends I wanted to, to tie up regarding the initial murder investigation he called me down for. And he'd been talking to me more and more about Tyler, and I wanted to like kind of be there for some of their relationship. I was interested in that relationship. Again, not really knowing what it was, except that I wasn't bored hearing about it. Mm-hmm. and. So, yeah, our last couple phone calls were me being like, let me just get this thing out. I'll be down right after 4th of July. And he was just like, oh, it's going to be so fucking hot. You're going to get such a shit down here in the summer. It's so hot. My God. And the fleas. And the... I'm going to have to, like, get the housekeeper over here and all this stuff. And then, yeah, like, that that week he, uh, he, he committed suicide. So I flew down for the funeral, you know, I think it was a week later. And uh, at that point I was just like, I just want to go to the funeral
1: obviously you were there as a reporter like you recorded it Mm -hmm. Um, but I wondered as I was listening to it and even just hearing you talk about it now I mean I would know you to be someone who would go to that funeral no matter what Yeah. and I wondered where the line was there for you like Mm -hmm. how much were you there for John and how much were you there for whatever story might come out of this reporting you'd been doing
0: I didn't know like I didn't, that was like the week where it was just like, I don't know, I would have gone regardless. I wanted to go. Right, and I um, guess that, I guess my question was, yeah. how did it
1: feel <laughs> to be recording that funeral, not knowing if you would use yeah. it? It felt, in one way, it
0: felt normal. We would try to record everything we can as reporters. Um, it wasn't a private event; anyone could go there. You know, I purposely didn't bring like my giant. I didn't want to be like any kind of visible impediment on the funeral, you know. But I wanted at the very least to be able to like write accurately what was said if I did write about it. Mm-hmm. I was open to not playing any of it, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know if I would, you know, but I wanted to be able to like say accurately what was said cuz I really I didn't know, like, you know, like I just didn't know the lay of the land like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, I got this picture from Tyler who I did know was close to John That there was something nefarious happening right you know so i was just like i just don't know and like maybe i'm just here and i'm never going to come back here and maybe i'm going to keep doing a story and i want to be here anyway like it's all those things but to me it's like it's a it was a unique experience for sure in in my career but it's not that far off from like the normal murkiness that's in most like journalistic enterprises if that makes sense
1: it's in the same family it was just kind of like a, a heightened version of it or something
0: I guess so. Yeah. That said, like, what it was like for me was I was attending a funeral. Like, you know what I mean? I had, I just had my phone going. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like, I attended the funeral and, like, had the feelings that I had thinking about John, wondering about his life. I, you know, as I say in the story, I felt like the John I knew at least wasn't represented at the funeral, which isn't necessarily a funeral's job. I think there's there can be debate on that, but mm-hmm. if I died, I would want my funeral to represent me personally. I don't know how John felt about it. Honestly, that was my main feeling was just like, wow, the religion in here is just not John's jam at all. <laughs> you know, like yeah, that like was it just honestly that off. was the main disorder It was a disorienting experience to be grieving a man through this prism that he so rejected. There's lots to sort through here, and figure out. You know, <laughs> so, so that like, yeah.
1: So just to keep with the chronology here for a second, so that's end of June. 2015 yeah at what point did you guys commit to doing this as like a spin-off standalone series um i think
0: within a week we i was like can we just talk about this for five minutes julian ira i mean when i learned that john died like i called ira i was like this happened you know he's like Oh, i'm so sorry and should i and i was like i know i'm producing this thing next week can i go to the funeral he's like yeah, hey, you should totally go um Ira's instinct is oh, is more of a reporter's one where he's just like this is the story and you should be documenting at all times that's his instinct like even more than mine I'd say mm-hmm. so then the funeral so then I like kind of checked in with them afterwards and I let him know what it was like I kind of talked him through like this situation of like I didn't know who was there exactly and there is this kind of brewing battle where like you know Tyler is saying like he's getting screwed and I do know that John laid out some wishes, or like he didn't lay out, but he talked to me about yeah, some wishes he about it. So, like I was like, there, you know, there might be something going on. And then, um, also, I described being with Tyler's family afterwards, and just like Uncle Jimmy being around, and just, just like, I've just never been a place like this. I've never <laughs> been to a funeral day that was like this. Like, I think that was part of for them where they understood like why I was like thinking about doing more, partly too. I was like, this is why I'm interested. I have questions about John. There might be something weird going on with his estate. So that's two very clear things I could report on. Meanwhile, the world of it is, it's just interesting to me. Like I've just never been a place quite like this and, you know, been on a funeral day like this and Uncle Jimmy and stuff. And then in terms of the storytelling, we did talk about that briefly. So I don't think we were like, this is a spinoff or something, but I think we were like, in this American life even though it's got so much space to be creative and to do experiments and to try new things it's amazing canvas for all that it still does come out of this history of a radio show and some of the conventions of radio is that like you can't rewind it you know like you are listening in the car or you're washing the dishes and you're doing other things and so we still at this american life like have a bit of didacticism that has to happen in the stories because we're worried that you're going to miss important information Mm -hmm. like if we're going to take a left turn or spend a few minutes talking about a tangent literally saying like trust us like this is going to be a tangent but it's important for this reason and we'll be back you know like saying things like that and we were like this story feels like it'd be cool if we didn't have to do that so much. Like if we could create a context in which Julie was saying this in this conversation where she was like, it'd be nice if we didn't have to be so didactic with this story. We could let things breathe a little bit. And she was like, you know, like with a novel, like, you know, you open up a novel and maybe the first page you're just talking about some character in the in made Arrest, like doing something. Or you've been in the middle of the novel and you start a chapter and it might start with some other character and you don't know why. But you know it's novel. So you're just like, I know this is how novels are. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, like right. sometimes like, they don't the just conceit. say like listen to the story because this is the thesis or yeah. we've uncovered this information or it's going to give you this payoff at the
1: end. Right. Like just just trust me. I'm going to talk about clocks like, for a people know bit here.
0: what novels are and so we were like maybe we can do something like that. Like where we can create a context in a podcast where people understand that's what we're doing and they trust us to stay with it even though we're not telling them why they should stay with it at all, at all points.
1: Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second to tell you a little bit about the sponsors making today's show possible. First up, Casper. And uh, I don't know if you've been able to hear this so far in the interview, but uh, I was a little tired when I talked to Brian because I had stayed up all night listening to S-Town in preparation. And uh, I was a little beat. And when we finished the interview, I went about my day. I did some work. And then you know what I did? I went home and I got a good night's sleep, an incredible night's sleep on a Casper mattress casper mattresses are just the best they've got this supportive memory foam and it creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce if you want to try a casper you can do it for a hundred nights Risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, and that's why they'll send it to your house. You can try it out for a hundred days. free shipping and returns to u s and Canada, and they've got over twenty thousand reviews with a four point eight star rating. It is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. So go check it out. You can get fifty bucks off any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash longform and using the offer code longform again that's casper.com slash longform use the offer code longform and you're gonna get 50 bucks off a mattress terms and conditions they apply also sponsoring the show today squarespace whatever your next big idea might be count on squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life put that idea on the internet Squarespace is here for you, whether it's a portfolio, a store, a blog, whatever. Squarespace has these beautiful templates and it all just works. You even get a unique domain and that's good because, you know, you don't want some janky other domain. You want your own thing. This is your idea. You're putting it out in the world, and you're using Squarespace. Uh, What else can I tell you about Squarespace? Award-winning customer service. Uh, You don't need to know any code, of course. It's all just drag and drop. Everything just works. Your website's going to look great, whether it's on a phone or a computer or whatever, some kind of weird tablet I've never even heard of. Uh, Everything with Squarespace just works, and if you do hit a snag, they've got that great customer service. So here is what I recommend you do. Uh, Make your next move. Start your free trial at squarespace.com. Enter the code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's the code LONGFORM for 10% off at squarespace.com. Let's get back to Brian. I'm interested in the tone with which you reported. Okay. Um, I think there is uh, a real danger Mm -hmm. when a... uh, Ivy League educated dude from Connecticut who works in New York City goes to spend a lot of time in a God, small you town. That sounds so.
0: You just did to me what what people are afraid I was going to do to people down there. I think
1: <laughs> really by think saying that? all those things. Yeah, I think so. Well, you didn't let me finish my my. Uh, my I'm not track. mad at you about it. It's very easy to do, but yeah. I'm interested in yeah how you report a story like this from a place of non-judgmental curiosity. How do you do that?
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to sound so defensive about that by the way. <laughs> it came out wrong. It's okay. Here's why I said that. Let me just this is a tangent and then I'll answer that question. Like I remember in one of the early edits of just like my coworkers being like, "So what is like what is Brian's character?" And they're like talking about me and like I'm right here, guys. <laughs> like <laughs> um, you know, and different coworkers know different things about my life and stuff. Some people were like, "Well, it's funny that you're like this Ivy League guy like in this like clock shop with these dudes, you know." And then like Julie would be like, Yeah, I know, but I feel like knowing a little bit about your family, like she's met my parents and stuff, that doesn't capture like where you come from exactly. Like like the connotations that certain descriptions of my life bring, I don't think accurately reflect my life. So like when you say, for instance, and I'm not mad at you about it, but like like an Ivy League guy from Connecticut, I know what that makes people think, and that's not me. And actually when this happened, I was like, I want to be super careful that I don't do that to anybody else. That experience of, like, sitting in a room talking about how I would be portrayed, possibly, and the signifiers that would be used to describe me, potentially, and then the feeling I had of, yeah, I'm from Connecticut, I went to the Ivy League, but I also, like, that's not the socioeconomic class I'm from. My dad didn't finish college, you know. Um, There were long stretches in my life where my dad was unemployed. Like, how hard it is to actually fully capture a person beyond the things that... You know, like, the easiest way to talk about a person, like, can often be very misleading. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that, like, so that was later in the process as I was writing where I was just like, oh, like, I have this pa- like a power over, like, describing these people and I want to be careful with it. But, yeah, a couple of people have asked me since it came out, like, how, you know, like, there's such a danger of, um, especially with, like, a, a northern reporter or a New York reporter going to the south, the rural south. Yeah. And there's such a danger of falling into stereotypes and reducing people and I'm sure there are places where I failed and, and like didn't do it as well as I could have, you know, but like I'm sure there are, but um, I didn't get hung up on like that specific kind of dynamic or juxtaposition of like New York reporter going down there. Like the week I went to visit John in 2014, I don't remember the exact order of these things, but I know that within a month, here are the places that I went reporting Right before that, I had spent a week in Milwaukee, riding around with the Milwaukee police on the night shift, and then also interviewing black residents. Then the next week, I went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to interview a guy who had joined this really weird like marketing scheme. I think it was those two first, and then I went down to John, but it was like those three things were in the same, like one week after another, mm-hmm. and then I went down to Bibb County. and. Uh, I don't feel like I was any different in any of those places. Like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm in the South, like I need to be extra wary of reducing people or giving into stereotypes or something. It's just like following my questions about people and just trusting that, I guess, and interacting with them on their own terms, but also my own terms too. So it's like not being afraid to call people out when I think it's weird, (laughs) you know, or like, to push back on things that I think are wrong, but not in like a judgmental way, like a jokey way, or the way, like better than the way I did with you when I bristled earlier. <laughs> like that was like one of the worst times I've ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but um, you know what I mean? Like, like, where do you think that confidence comes from? The confidence. Well, that comes from. I mean, that's a learn. That's partly a learned, um, like, professional skill too. I'd say, like, um. I've now worked in radio for, gosh, almost 10 years. You deal with enough tape, and one of the biggest problems, both as a reporter and a producer, when people who are newer to it, I'd say, and that I fell into early on, is if the reporter or the interviewer isn't saying to the person in the tape what the audience is going to be thinking or the point they're going to want to make about the tape, if that's not in the tape... And you don't have the person reacting to it and you don't have a moment built around that feeling and that question and that observation, the tape often becomes unusable. And so I think part of it is like it's a it's a professional skill that I've developed and I've just gotten more confident at it at the way in the way that anybody develops a professional skill that they get better at, mm-hmm. you know? in the way that, like, you might get more confident at, like, shooting, like, free throws or something, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that totally Um, makes sense. Yeah. I think the... This is maybe just the experience of listening to S-Town, listening to the stuff you do generally, but particularly S-Town, as someone who knows you, is, um, it doesn't sound that different to me than how you are when you're not trying to get tape.
0: Well, that's good, Then I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad, yeah, I hope it's not... um...
1: Like the two things feel. I'm not ca- putting on a
0: show, you know. Like, a, like a, the two things feel connected to me is what yeah. I'm saying.
1: It's not as though those instincts didn't exist. No,
0: I do. I think I'm personally suited for my profession. Like, you know, I think like i found a job that really suits me, and I feel very grateful for that. So yeah, I'm sure it is part of my personality too. You know, because it it does feel right when I'm doing it. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Um, and I think the more you do radio, the more you realize that the most fun tape. I mean, there's a certain type of radio tape where, like, you're you're getting someone to tell you a story about something that happened in the past. That's like the basic building block of like a narrative radio story. Yeah, and ra- radio is amazing in that way, where like you can build a whole story about something that happened years ago if the storyteller recounts it to you well, and if as an interviewer you're getting them to lay it out in beats and with you know moments of reflection. And like that takes a lot of time to learn, as like a radio producer to learn how to get that kind of tape and when the tape is good and how to get the feelings that you want to get at certain points in the anecdotes and the story. So that's one kind of tape. But as you do more and more radio, like the more interesting and weird tape, it's not that kind of tape. You know, (laughs) the most interesting tape is like tape where you're expressing how you're feeling to someone and you don't know how they're going to say it. Or like tape where like something's changing in the interview, like something's happening in real time rather than, the interviewee recounting something in the past. That tape can be very powerful, but like, I don't know what I'm interested in this point, like just doing this for so long is tape where stuff's happening in it. <laughs> you know, Does that make sense? That, yeah, yeah. That moment in S-Town yeah. where you're, you're
1: like, you have a crazy look in your eye. Yeah. Is one of those moments?
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, it's like, and a lot of the editing in S-Town, like in chapter six, actually, which is almost entirely with this guy, Olin, Olin, I mean, we talked for so long, and he had so many memories of John's just biography. And so there were versions of that chapter where it was much more biographical. Like, mm-hmm. it was like...
1: Right, and then in the final version, that's almost like a little aside.
0: Particularly Neil Drumming, my colleague Neil, who was in on all our edits, and he was really, like, pushing us on this. He was just like, after, like, three edits, we weren't quite getting it. Like, we were cutting biography out, but it was still kind of focused around the biography. And Olin was a nice talker and he had good stories and incredible memory for detail. So I was like, this is radio. Like he's telling me about the main character's life and he's got great anecdotes about every aspect of his life. Like he spent how many hundreds of hours on the phone with him and Olin's a good storyteller himself. I'm like, this is radio. This will work. I think we can have room in the story for some like anecdotes. And Neil was just like, it's not dynamic like the other chapters to hear him for a really long time, lay out anecdotes about John's life. Like you can have some of that. But he was like, the more interesting thing that's happening in this interview is their relationship Mm -hmm. and Olin working through it and you being a conduit for that. And so, like, the process of those edits with that episode was, like, cutting out a lot of the more kind of, like, standard radio tape and focusing on the moments where Olin was working through his relationship with John. And we read it for him. He was like, yeah. And it was much quieter at the end. and It was not what Julie and I had imagined. Yeah. And now we, we thought that was going to be one of the easier episodes or easier chapters. Right. And it was cool that Neil held us to like a higher standard in terms of like you guys seem to have like accomplished something interesting in the other chapters where like it's never that standard radio tape, really. It's like things are advancing in the tape.
1: We've been, we've been talking for a long time. We haven't talked about um, the decision around episode two. Okay. Um, Which decision? The decision to have John suicide that early in your story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last 20 minutes of episode two, I don't know, man. I haven't heard anything better than that or more Uh moving than that. Like I, thought, I love that stretch <laughs> so much. I, I, I I'm I appreciate it. And I mean, I thought like I, I, I honestly <laughs> I thought, like I, thought the twist was gonna be about like humanity. Yeah. Like I was listening to it in the middle of the night um in my house. It was like three thirty okay. in the morning. I'd w i had woken up, couldn't sleep, and was listening to it. Mm-hmm. And um all these people had already told me, like, just wait for the end of episode two. Okay. which was annoying. Yeah. And so I knew something was coming, you know. Yeah. And I really thought there's this moment, like the like the sundial stuff got me.
0: Anyway, John told me sundials often have mottos engraved on them. John says tedious and brief is one. What do you mean?
1: Tedious. And Your brief? life is tedious and brief. All sundial mottos are sad like that.
0: There are hundreds of these mottos. Life passes like the shadow. Make haste, but slowly. Use the hours, don't count them. Even as you watch, I'm fleeing. Soon comes night. These little reminders are out there, hidden in crannies around the world. I recently happened upon a sundial in the cemetery of an old Catholic mission next to a grave. Because of John, I knew to look for the motto. It read, Neil Boni Hodier, DM Perdidi. I did nothing good today. I have lost a day. Can I ask you this? Or yeah. I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm curious. Like when you're hearing the sundial stuff, kind of where are you at? Because at that point, the question of the murder has been put to
1: bed. Yeah, I felt like the turn we were taking, and this is something about the position that serial in this American life are in, which is like, I have complete faith that if you guys are going to do seven episodes in a spinoff series, it will deliver on some level, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it, it,
0: it's a helpful position to be in. Yeah. yeah. There's
1: an expectation that the time will work. And, and again, like mm-hmm. I think it's commendable and remarkable to take that and try and do something new and weird and, um, somewhat difficult at points. Right. Uh, like, I, I, I think that's a, uh, that's a cool we're way trying, to handle that We're spot. trying
0: to not be bored, you know? Right, right. Fend off boredom. Um,
1: uh, So uh, I knew it was going like, to going somewhere. And really, like, I felt like, <laughs> I didn't know exactly what the prayer was going to be, but I felt like the twist was basically going to be, this isn't a true crime story. Mm-hmm. This is a story about time and humanity and, and living your best life, okay. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I was not I was not ready for that phone call with Skylar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Sundial stuff I mean really like I was like I wanted to like go like wake my kid up and oh. you know like give him a hug Oh. Um, <laughs> and then like I wanted to go and yeah, like Sundials are beautiful it's I, a
0: beautiful I, thing that I never yeah. knew about <laughs> it was really yeah yeah yeah, it beautiful.
1: I, I, uh, yeah man it got me yeah. um, but for this character that You're that invested in by the end of episode two uh, and connected to um, to have, I mean, obviously you guys are making this decision, you know, two years later, a year and a half afterwards to have him, to have you, to have the listeners find out that early in the series. I, I wondered whether that was a decision that came early, late, how you think about the timing of a turn like that.
0: Um, what I remember about that is shortly after he died in real life like again I kind of had these two reporting threads that I was going looking at like learning about his life finding people who knew him calling people on his contact list that was one thread and then this other thread of the estate battle and uh, I found that the more time went on and the more reporting I did on that stuff in my head like my just kind of like hazy sense of the structure, which was not written down or anything like that. I could just sense that the spot where his suicide would come in the story was getting earlier and earlier to the point where I remember by the time we finally, like after almost, you know, nine months had gone by of reporting after he died or more, sitting down with Julie to finally structure this out, knowing like, I think, I think we're going to do the news about the suicide at the end of chapter two. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of just out of an instinct of like, most of the actual reporting I have now, most of the actual action where things are happening, where there are moments where I don't know what's going to happen and then something happens and I learn something, the majority of that happens after he died, you know? Um, like, I'd only had one trip down there with him when he was alive and then like nine or ten trips like after he died, oh, you know? Okay. And uh, I don't know what we would have put in the story to make it still a story that you'd want to keep listening to. Mm-hmm without telling you like this is actually what the story is about at that point, you know? If that yeah. makes sense. Um, yeah,
1: well I mean it's funny, I, I um, uh, did this interview with David Graham once and asked him about twists mm-hmm. and his whole theory of twists is like they have to happen the way that they happen to the people in the story.
0: And that's also true,
1: yeah, yeah. And in this case like it yeah. happened to you, Yeah. you know? And yeah. it feels like it kind of happens to you when it happened to you. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I do think like in certain situations we might have had more flexibility with where we could have talked about that if the murder investigation had been different in some way or there had been some other piece of corruption that I had looked into, but I hadn't. So we only had so much material to talk about before we had to explain why we were were still interested in the story, Mm -hmm. you know? And the reason we're still interested in the story is is John's death and the things
1: that happened as a result. When you set out to like do something new, mm-hmm. what do you draw on? Like S Town doesn't sound like any other podcast. So mm-hmm. where did you look for your like inspiration and in how to do it?
0: Um Julie and I talked about novels. You know, we you know, I wasn't involved in the creation of serial, but I was around and I've talked to Julie and Sarah about it and stuff and I know they thought about it more like T V, you know? Um or it's my understanding, I think maybe I think this is true. I think Sarah was like, well it'll be like an it'll be like an audiobook. And then Julia was like, No, 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 TV. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my understanding of the early early kind of conception of it. So if that was more like TV, we explicitly talked about novels as like a thing to think about in terms of structuring this, and for a few reasons. First of all, like the world of the story, the feel of it, the details, like the metaphors upon metaphor that John was handing me, like in terms of the maze and clock making and yeah, you know just the whole world of it felt like a novel and like that kind of seemed right then also um, I've been pretty clear like I always wanted it all to come out at once Um, and why were you so clear on that well a couple reasons like I didn't want to do the first chapter I mean a, a practical one quite honestly is like if we were to release the first chapter you would google John's name and know that he died um. So I always knew that at least the first two had to come out together. Another practical reason is I cannot do what Sarah does. Like, I could never write a thing every week like that. I just, it's not possible. She's, like, just, a, like, it's a miracle <laughs> that she can do that. I have no idea how she does it. I, I wouldn't want to do it. Uh-huh. I don't aspire to do it. Like, it sounds so hard and, like, difficult. Yeah, it's hard. I take longer. <laughs> not... So that was another one those are the practical ones. But then like the feeling, like we knew that we didn't want every chapter to have to end with a cliffhanger. We didn't have that many cliffhangers. We had some. But also we didn't want to have to. Like Mm -hmm. it felt a little dirty or something to have to, you know, Um, or just boring or something. We wanted some chapters to have a quieter ending or an idea ending or a mood ending, you know, and it felt like that would serve our ability to do that, to, to release them all at once. So I always kind of had that sense. And then also I was like the experiment of it. I don't think, I don't know of anyone who's done it, right. at least with a story like this, that sounded cool to me. So there were, those were the kind of my early reasons for it. Um, <clears throat> and then we started talking about novels pretty early on um, when we started structuring. And I think we looked at novels for two different types of things in terms of like inspiration. One was just va- like a feel and a mood. So like one novel I know that Julie and I both read was um, Stoner by John Williams, which like it was like the hip thing to be reading. It's like <laughs> um, that book is a piece of fiction. That's have you read it It's short? Never read it. No. It's just about the life of this guy, William Stoner, I believe, who's a professor at like a Midwestern college, like in the f- mid 20th century. The very small story of his unremarkable life. It's devastating. The first paragraph just lays out basically like all the unremarkable things about his life. Like he was a professor his whole life. He never left this town. Like he never wrote anything of note after he died. Very few of his colleagues would ever remember him. Like it just lays all that out in the first paragraph. And we, I don't think structurally we really like. I mean, it's a feat of prose. It's amazing. Just that like he keeps you interested. There's no plot. You know, like it's just this guy going through the things that make up a life, but The vibe of like a story about a life was in our minds, Mm -hmm. like so. We did talk about Stoner early on, just as like we both like that, (laughs) you know. But then we weren't like, all right. So what does Stoner do, and all that stuff? Where we did look to actually steal like a trick was this author Edward P. Jones, who I love. He's from DC, and he has one novel, The Known World, which is just incredible.
1: What was the trick from that book?
0: Both his book and his short stories. He has two short story collections. he does this move in his writing where, like, he'll be talking about maybe a main character or maybe a tangential character, and he'll give a sentence or a few sentences where he'll just say something that happens to them in the future, like in the future tense or like a, in the whatever tense it is called when you're like, he would go on to do such and such thing years later. And sometimes it's relevant to the plot and sometimes it's not. And what we realized when, I, when we sat down at the beginning of summer 2016, so last summer, when Julie and I finally were like, okay, let's actually talk about the tape we have, the story we have, what structure this would be. We kind of realized that like I'd been around so long reporting this thing that I'd accidentally given myself the magic power of omniscience in a (laughs) lot of situations. Does that make sense? Like like it kind of, I was like, wait a minute. So like there's gonna be points in the story where I'm talking about something that happened a year and a half ago and I know what happens. Like I'm like got this omniscient, people literally been born and died in the time that I've been around. And all the other things that happen in, in a life, like I was like, it'd be cool to try and use that power a little bit. And to me, like I like how in fiction Edward P. Jones uses that power. And so I went, like I I had read The Gnome World already. Like I went through the first like hundred pages and underlined like every time that he used that trick, basically just mm-hmm. to kind of get it in my head. And it, I thought it would appear in the in S Town more than it does, but it does appear a little bit.
1: Give me give me like an example of where it appears.
0: Um. In the first chapter, um, when I first meet Tyler in John's clock shop and he's filing a chainsaw, there's a line where I say, if Tyler's wearing a shirt, you know that he's going to court. At least that's what his mom will tell me one day. Mm-hmm. I think she told me that a year and a half later, you know, right. um, and there's little moments like that throughout where it's future tense, which is like not something I often hear in radio stories, you yeah, know? definitely not. So, and then as we were structuring it, we were like, okay, maybe some omniscience goes here. And we had a, like, you know, we structured the thing using note cards of different colors. We had a whole key, like it's still on the wall. Julie the other day was like, I think I need to take this down to talk about like the next season of Serial. I was like, can we leave it up a little longer? But like, there's a whole wall in the office
1: that's just filled with note cards. You need to just like send me a picture of that and we'll put it in the show notes or something.
0: Okay. I have pictures. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and it wraps around a corner. Cause the way we structured it is like, it's just Julie and me like sitting there kind of like jamming, like just talking through different ways that it could go for days and days and days for like months. (laughs) Like, it's just like, all right, so we start with you getting an email and then we just like talk through like, and then this and then this and then this, no, that would, we don't need that yet. Or that's too much information there. Or Julie will try something and I'll be like, that was good up until this point. Then I got bored. So let's not do that. Or like. I think if we keep this till later, it'll be more surprising. Like it's all that kind of stuff. And we're just doing that constantly and doing it over and over again about the same parts of the story to refine it like over the course of a year. And so, but in this early stage, like we were doing it. And so we would talk it through it and write it on a whiteboard. And we got to the end of what seemed like the end of a chapter. We took a picture of it, transcribed it into Google Docs, did the next one. And we did that through and we had nine episodes the first time we did it. And we were like, okay we can't like picture what we've done now because it's not all in one place Right. so we were like okay let's start again So like, and then we started writing them on note cards and actually putting them on the wall so that we could look at the whole thing like in one spot rather than having to go from Google Doc to Google Doc or whatever or even just one Google Doc and then so then we were nine ch- episodes though the ninth one was a little bit of a grad bag of like material <laughs> it was like whatever's left over <laughs> right. so at that point Julie had the brilliant idea of asking Starly Kind to come in because she's just really good at, like, talking through stories. She's, like, a genius about that. And uh, so she came in, and we sat there with the note cards on the wall and spent two days telling her the story based on the note cards. I think we only played her that first phone call of tape, and other than that, there was no tape played. I hadn't cut any other tape. And uh, so just so she could hear John's voice and kind of why we liked hearing from him, you know, so she could get that. But otherwise, we just talked her through every beat of the story, and she was amazing she immediately got kind of what we were trying to do she got that we were trying to do something a little different that we we're trying to break some rules she was very um, encouraging and like I don't think you need to be as didactic I think in podcasting we're relying on this like over explanation too much I mm-hmm. think listeners are getting more sophisticated to this medium like they don't need this as much and we shouldn't feel so bound by it so she was very encouraging in that sense And but mostly she would just be like we get to a part she'd be like um, boring you don't need that I understand that about this character already like we don't need that Um, or like I think you should move this up you know and by the time we got to the end of the two days we were down to seven chapters basically we cut enough and rearranged enough and she also gave us like an incredibly important idea that helped the story exist at the end the idea that she was thinking it would go in chapter seven but as we started writing we put it in chapter three that John calls me down here to like uncover a body Um of this alleged murder that had happened and that would expose shit town, but actually John's the body that was Starley's like, those are her words.
1: Do you think that like your presence in that town and in John's life impacted the story in any way?
0: Like the Heisenberg
1: uncertainty principle. Yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that I believe in that principle as like a physical law of the world. Then it certainly applies to reporting. Anytime a reporter's doing a story, the reporters creating the story, like they have questions, like just the basic fact of a reporter having a question, which you can't be a reporter if you don't have a question. You're willing a story into being.
1: I think uh, yes, yeah. that, that all makes sense. I think I, right. I w- meant that question less conceptually. Mm-hmm. I think what I like. In, uh, no, I think wait. what I was asking was, what do you think your interest meant to John
0: in his in his life? Yeah. Um there's a lot of reasons why a source might be motivated to reach out to a journalist and to spend time with a journalist. They could be uh, like, you know, whistleblower. They could be, you know, like that instinct, you know, to expose wrongdoing. It could be, um, Like, you have some kind of agenda, you know, some kind of personal agenda, you know, like the whole world, you know, is open to journalism and there could be people in different corners. I think something that doesn't get talked about as much that I experienced a lot in this story as a motivation for why John or other people are in this story is to just get a kick out of a reporter being around. Like, it's just kind of a, it's injects incitement into their life (laughs) to have someone there. It's new. It's weird. It's funny. Like, I'm someone they can fuck with a little bit, if that makes sense. Like... So I think John got a kick of me being around. We talked about so much shit that had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he like, oh, my God. Like, I've sat through lectures that he put together with, like, slideshows on climate change and energy depletion with, like, ridiculous, like, YouTube videos and pornography. Like, all sorts of stuff that he was just, like, you need to d- sit through this lecture and then we can talk about the murder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it literally was like, yeah. um, like I'm, I'm like, I call him in the morning. One morning, I'm like, I'm on my way over. We got go to the library today, whatever. Uh, he's like, okay, but sure. First, you guys. He's like, it's only 20 minutes. I've timed it. You got to sit through this climate <laughs> change lecture. <laughs> like, literally, I get to his house, and there's like on his computer 50 tabs open, and then he just goes on this like lecture where he's going from tab to tab in perfect order, and the tabs are graphs and interspersed with funny videos to make me laugh like along with like information that's so dense and images I don't know you know what I mean like he's getting a kick out of it like and he knew and he you know he said a couple times to me we thought about putting this tape in the story but ultimately we didn't there's a couple times when I was down there where he was like I knew you were going to come down here and get a story that's more interesting than the one you came down here for like he knew like you know and like um, he there was one point where we were talking I was asking about something about his life because I was also obviously interested in John I wasn't just like murder 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 like you know this guy is in front of me like what there's a mate I'm not gonna be like oh don't I don't want to see the maze you, you know what <laughs> I mean like what like <laughs> you know um like so like he was telling me the story of when he quit college and how he just like stood up and walked out like he just was like he was fuck it basically is what he was um he just like walked out of a final and never went back to college And I think that's what he was talking about. I could be wrong. But like he was reminded of this quote from a Balzac story because I was inquiring about his instinct to quit college that way. And he was like, it's like that quote in in Droll Stories, like, I live life on a grand scale, my sir. I live life on a grand scale. And he was like, what story is that from? The Droll Stories. And he goes over to his his, uh, bookshelf and pulls down the Droll Stories and searches for the quote. And it's like some character in some story and like some French court who's actually got like flatulence or something and needs to like walk out of the court. It's so ridiculous. And he's like reappropriating the quote and saying like, I live life on a grand scale. Like he's putting on a show for me, you know? Um, And that dynamic, like we talked about, like one day you could name this show shit town. You know what I mean? Like he knew, like, I think and I told him I was interested in him. Like I was like, I think the story, like your part, why I'm interested in this story. Like I told him that, you know, and I think it fed it, it fed itself a bit like that dynamic where he would put on a bit of a show for me, you know? Um, and so like, there's, it's a unique thing in his life. I think like to have that experience, to have someone interested in you and ask you about yourself and to follow you into your weird interests. Um, it's validating. Yeah. It's validating. It's a little, you know, it's, it's, There are strange parts to it because, like, we got to know each other. I cared about him. Very little was asked about my life, you know. So it's not a friendship, because a friendship would be two ways. Or if it wasn't two ways, I would have the right to be like, "Hey, dude, like, you're being pretty like self-centered." But like, like it's my job to just listen and ask questions, and you know, um, and it's an interesting relationship.
1: What do you think you would have thought of it? Then result.
0: I would never venture to put myself inside John B. McElmore's brain. I really wouldn't. To, I have knew no, it. I think he could have honed in on some detail of it that would, like, set him off. Or I think he could have loved it. Or, I, you know, I don't know. I would never presume to know how that man would respond to anything.
1: <laughs> have you thought yeah. about it?
0: No, because I'm not making it for him. Like, I'm making it about him, and he's—I'm making it for his memory, but but i'm i'm not making it for him to hear you know and um no i think like if i was making it for him like there would be 3 chapters about peak oil i'm serious like that's if i was making it for him it would be 3 chapters about peak oil like it's a story i'm telling that i like that's about him and doing him justice and stuff and and but also i don't think a lot of people would listen if it was like his lectures on peak oil you know so like I don't know
1: how do you think you'd be uh, received if you showed up in Woodstock right now
0: I'm getting reactions they're drizzling in Um, I think it'd be good I think it'd be okay actually I wasn't sure for a little bit but I think it'd be okay like there were a couple stories that came out like the morning we launched that a couple local reporters have been working on ahead of time and we'd given them a couple episodes to listen to You know we wanted the local press to cover it and stuff we want people there to listen to it, obviously. And a couple of them like had quotes from people I, I've done interviews with worried about the story, saying maybe they wish they hadn't taken part, stuff like that. And one was like, you know, slightly frightened of the public attention and, you know, I mean, we contact all of the people in the story and offer them help with like making their Facebook settings private or give them advice on if they want to take their Facebook down. Like we we talk to people about this before it comes out and you know it's obviously up to them you know but we kind of talked to them about what could happen or you know you know just in terms of like you know people are going to hear this and uh so the couple of people i read these quotes from like the mayor was one of them and i'd interviewed his wife and him and uh you know the title shit town like talk of a murder i think like you, you know i get it like i'm not. It's not it's not an easy story to describe and then to name it shit. I get why (laughs) like they would bristle at it. So I wrote them and just, just like, I'm sorry you feel this way. I worry that you have the wrong idea about the story. Um, Just please listen to it. And like, I hope you, I hope you like it. Like it really, it's not a bad story about a scandal in the town. It's a sad story about John's life. You know, like that was kind of how I framed it. And uh, so then anyway, people have been listening and writing me and saying like, yeah, I regret saying that to that reporter. And this is really nice. And maybe there's one or two things like I'm bothered by, but like, it's a really good story. And you know, my wife, one guy was like, my wife listened and she loves novels and she got through it all already. And she said it was incredible. And so like, that's the highest praise you could get, you know? And, uh, even I've heard now from the mayor's wife and she was like, Thank you for portraying me the way you did. Like you're a good storyteller, and and then yeah, she really she liked it. She had I think she listened to just parts at that point, and then she said and then she said her husband liked it too. And I've heard from Tyler's family, and they um, they loved it apparently. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I've, we started to get emails and see things online from people I don't know who are from Bibb County or live there now or used to live there and almost all of them are completely validating in terms of like either saying like you totally captured it or writing me to tell me about more corruption that's happening <laughs> that I need to look into like in John's way where I'm just like I don't know if this is true like you guys think there's so much paranoia about local corruption where it's just completely validating of like chapter 4 in particular and John's whole premise of writing us
1: how so. how meaningful is that reaction to you
0: which part which one
1: having people say that it's good and sounds true.
0: Oh my god, you can't... Like, yeah, I couldn't ask for anything. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to capture reality. Um, so, like, yeah. Like, that's the highest praise I could ask for. You know? More than it made me cry or something like that. You know? Like, the people in it feel that it's true and that they learned something from it about their place, but that also the people outside are getting an accurate picture, I mean, God, I, I can't, I mean, I worked really hard to make that the case. So I'm really pleased that they feel that way, you know, and I don't think I'm going to, uh, like please everybody, but so far it's been affirming in that way.
1: Ultimately, what, uh, what do you think the story is about? Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't
0: listened to like the whole thing produced. Like, I don't have the experience of listening to it in the proximity that I think listeners are now hearing it.
1: You never listened to it, like, one through seven straight through? No time, no. (laughs) Even while you were blissfully walking around the city?
0: Well, then it was too late to do anything about it, so I certainly wasn't going to do anything then. Um, The last time I've heard some chapters was months ago, you know? So it's a little hard. Like, I do think... There's a package we've created that I don't have a total sense of mm-hmm. right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. but Like I think hope I mean I think it's a lot about a lot of things. like one thing that I think it's about is like how we are part of the places that we come from and the way a place is a reflection of the people who live there. But also then influences back the people who live there, and just the relationship between people. And, and it sounds very academic or something, but like that's kind of a thing that like hangs in the story because it's a story about this place. But it's a story about this place as this guy sees it, as John sees it, you know. So I think in like a broad sense, that's what it's about. But then it's also just about um, the remarkableness of of an like what could be called an unremarkable life, you know. Like I've had people. A couple, maybe just one, but like uh, I've been told by people who knew John in town, like he didn't accomplish anything. And that's why he was so bitter. And I hope this pushes it back against that notion, you know, Um, if that makes sense. But it's a story that's also about climate change, (laughs) you know, and like, uh, and titty rings and like, uh, I don't know, like it's a story about a lot of stuff.
1: There's a thing uh, it's a thing that happens in novels. Okay. Some of the novels you have mentioned. Sure. I'm sure this happens in um, in which some characters are left unresolved. Uh-huh. Some storylines remain slightly unknown. Mm-hmm. You don't get every answer. Mm-hmm. The kind of novels my mom hates. <laughs> For example. Yeah.
0: I was like, Mom, I don't think you're gonna know I don't know if you're gonna like shut down. But anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um Do you feel unresolved about things in the story that are unresolved?
0: In like a intellectual
1: sense, like
0: I understand that there are things unresolved in the story. Um, in terms of hidden treasure, or, you know, things like that. In terms of whether John indeed did have mercury poisoning or Mad Hatter's disease, which, you know, I'm unable to say definitively emotionally and spiritually, I don't feel unresolved about it. I feel like we really did put together a package of a story with what we had, you know? And so that I feel, I feel okay with it. And actually like the questions that are kind of lingering, like are part of it in a way that I'm, I think are cool, you know, like that I hope are part of the texture of the story, you know? Uh, Is there anything about it
1: for you, not in the package that you put out, but for you personally in the emotional, spiritual realm that's unresolved? unresolved?
0: I mean, besides wishing that like John didn't commit suicide, you know, like, but that's almost a selfish wish, quite honestly. Like I've also, I think I've come to the point where, um, I was very kind of like of that mind for a long time and then talking to his friends more and more and having people who knew him far better than I did and far longer and more intimately say like, like I think he, um. You know, people tell me, like, I, I think it's okay that he did this. Like, I, I feel relieved for him. I've come around to understanding that and even being at peace with that, you know? So I think for a long time there was, like, this just, like... Like, there were parts of working on the, of the reporting where it was very... Um, I know I said a lot of it is like, building a house, but there were parts during the reporting, where, like, you know, in, in the middle of my dozen or some odd trips down there, which is like, I do just feel like a little bit of a sinking feeling in my stomach a lot. I'm just like, this sucks. You know, like, I really wish this didn't happen. Um,
1: Did you have that feeling when you would listen back to the tape where he would talk about it with you?
0: It, well, I I purposely didn't listen back to any tape with John for a very long time um, after he died. Like, I, there was enough to report on. And we weren't ready just like on the show for me and Julie to be working on it full time, actually like creating it where I didn't have to listen back to John. And so I didn't. Um, and I was grateful for that. Um, so by the time I actually went back to my report recordings with John, almost a year had passed since he died. And I think that was really helpful, you know, um, but cause I knew that those times were in there and those I thought about a lot. And I talked to his friends about it, you know, because we all had the same experience. He told the majority of people in his life that he was going to commit suicide. In many cases, he told them for years and over and over again, and none of us did anything. Um, and so, yeah, I was—I talked to a lot of people about that. Like, that was like, this is something, as a person, I want to talk about with people. And maybe it's something we'll talk about in the story. I don't know. But um, it was helpful for me not everyone feels this way and maybe it's even the minority, but I came around to like in particular John's professor, who's known him the majority of his life and knowing how depressed he was even in college, he was just like, I'm relieved for John. Like, I don't feel that this was a bad decision for him to commit suicide. Um, Like I eventually kind of came around to that spot. so, and like, you know, I'm open to the idea that like people can decide to do this, you know, and it's not my instinct to feel that that's like certainly not what I believe about suicide personally or ending my life or anything. Um, I'm not like a trained mental health person or anything, but I'm willing to allow for the like there to exist in the world. People who believe that they should be able to do that, you know. And that was some that was like a journey I took kind of in talking to people who knew John really well, you know,
1: did arriving at that place give you the space to end the show with his note?
0: Um, I don't know if it was directly related to that, like the note when I saw it, the thing that really and actually it was it was really Julie who helped me make sense of what the note meant in the context of the story and maybe I don't know if this is because like I was I knew John and she didn't or just cuz she's like super smart and good at her job but um she just pointed out like actually this is you know if you put aside like the manifesto parts and stuff if you actually look at the part that's about his life like um he's saying I did it like he's saying I did it like despite um hating where he lives and all the terrible things around him and the way it made him feel confined what he's saying in the note is i was still able to live a like a worthwhile life that's that's the argument he's making you know he's saying i engaged with all these ideas around the world like i accomplished things i wanted to accomplish i spent my hours doing things that i chose um i've had it better than so many other people and so then we were like that should be at the end like that's how he felt about it at the end you know
1: so I'm glad you feel good about it at the end Brian (laughs)
0: I mean it's you know it's not like
1: I don't feel uplifted
0: by (laughs) what he did I don't feel happy about it but I've again it's like with other things like I'm not going to totally judge it myself I'm not inside his experience you know so
1: I don't mean good I mean at peace
0: oh Yeah I think I do at this point at least but it's also going to be a thing that I'm not just going to move on from it like I'm sure I'll have different feelings but at this point I feel um, we put a lot of work into making this thing and you know I I don't feel totally like maybe there's some unresolved stuff that I'm just ignoring right now but Um, Well you put a lot of work into talking to me about it and I appreciate it it was a pleasure. Thank you for helping me think through it. It's the longest conversation I've had about it and since it came out 72 hours ago. So thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper. Thank you, Mickey. Our sponsors were Squarespace, Casper, the new podcast, First Day Back, and of course our friends at MailChimp who have been supporting us from the start. Thanks to them and uh, thanks to Brian Reed. It's... Uh, It's a spectacular thing to watch your friend make something like that. We'll see you next week. Why
0: do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk...